And I would have some of my artistic friends go, oh, you write, you write for a trucking magazine? I go, yeah, it's one of the best gigs I have. I get to travel all over the country. I get to ride in trucks that, I, that I'm not qualified to drive, but I get to, and I, and I get to meet people who haul I, you know, cheese from Wisconsin. I get to meet people who haul multi-million dollar antique cars. I get, how many miles, how many roads, how many miles, how many roads? Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Rumble strips howling in the rain. Hey everybody, Todd Dills here, back with another edition of Overdrive Radio as usual. This one for Friday, January 14th, 2022. This week is not so usual. I'll be handing off hosting duties of a fashion to the esteemed long-haul Paul Marhofer, Indiana-based Muller trucking reefer hauler, singer-songwriter, and longtime contributor to the Overdrive Extra blog series. Here's a perhaps first-ever podcast edition of Marhofer's equally long-running Faces of the Road series of oral histories and profiles. Today, we'll sit down with the writer both of texts and of songs that you heard there at the top, Michael Perry. He's done a little bit of everything in both departments, from, yes, like me, writing for a trucking magazine, to, quite unlike me, penning a New York Times best-selling memoir. We'll hear much more about that from Long Haul Paul here momentarily, And before it's all over, a full rendition of Perry's How Many Miles trucking song, with that motion is your morphine refrain that you also heard at the top. The context of the conversation is a phrase I suspect you've seen popping up in the myriad conversations around work that have buzzed and blipped all around us since the COVID-19 pandemic began in 2020. The great resignation is that phrase, code for, in my mind, a desire of so many to find a way to carve out a living outside the old routine of working a single job for a single company. We see it in trucking today, of course. One need look no farther than the scads of new independents among you to see the pull and promise of self-employment in this day and age. If you missed my feature series on power-only operations, find it via overdriveonline.com to see just how dramatic the numbers of new authorities have been over the last year and more. But let's not get ahead of the sticks here. Here's Long Haul Paul who sets up his trip to Wisconsin to speak to a consummate self-employer in Michael Perry, steeped in a rural Wisconsin background that, yes, dovetails routinely with trucking. Here we go. Okay, I've got a serious question today. How do you just know when it's time to hang it up? I'm 62 now, and I keep catching myself devising this exit strategy from the life of a full-time trucker. After all, right now, right now, there's 1500 bucks a month in rocking chair money just waiting for me right there at the Social Security office in Muncie, Indiana. And we've had phone conferences with our CPA as well as well, just a little too much screen time gawking over YouTube videos like Retire Early, 800 a month, Boquete, Panama. I hear it's beautiful this time of year. Truth is, and it really pains me to admit this, it embarrasses me. 
I never planned on getting old this soon. I've watched my own dad continue to work well into his 70s. He could march me into the ground at the age of 80. And here I am. Two of my friends having died, closest friends, having died in recent months, and those cats weren't very much older than me. Let's face it, trucking is not the healthiest way to make a living. And I've had a couple of my own medical setbacks, uh, one of which was life-threatening, all within the last six months. We're living in this new dystopia of closed restrooms and eateries, and not to mention the slow-burning angst and malaise of operating in this seemingly endless pandemic while grinding away all week at an OTR job, going home for a day and a half and getting up and doing it all over again. Quite honestly, it's all made Paul a very dull boy. Now don't get me wrong, I don't hate trucking. I just need a little more time away from it, like maybe two, three weeks a month. Is that too much to ask? Just truck, take a week or two off, do a little more trucking. Is that really all that too much to ask? And I'm beginning to wonder whether the whole paradigm of working for just this one company and expecting them to provide for me health insurance and this cafeteria of benefits. Is that fair to them? Is it fair to me to live in this monoculture of one job? They need you so many days a week, so many days a year, or it's not worth it to them to provide you benefits. Is that even fair to them? So I keep asking myself this question. And let's face it, one of the occupational hazards of being a truck driver is we've just got too doggone much time to think. Paul, if you didn't have to work a full-time job for your health insurance, what would you do differently? I'll tell you what I really want to do. I want to be a substitute Spanish teacher. I learned Spanish on the road with cassettes, and it made things much easier for me on the docks and in places like South Texas and South Florida and California. I, there were times I got moved to the head of the line because I checked in in, in Spanish. What would it be like to be a substitute Spanish teacher? I could take that tweed coat to the dry cleaners and, uh, and just, uh, you know, be a guy in a tie and blue jeans for once. Other things. Maybe I could write a few more articles for Overdrive magazines. Maybe I could play a few more concerts. I keep turning people down who I wish I could play for. You know what I really want to do in life? I want to teach my grandson how to drive a stick shift, how to change a tire, how to do the things that d define what a man is. And you can't do that being gone all the time. So, once again, I shamelessly parlayed the platform lent to me by Overdrive magazine to speak with someone I truly admire, someone who might be able to point me in the right direction. So this week's victim was New York Times best-selling author, playwright, humorist, radio show host, singer-songwriter, newspaper columnist, and intermittent pig farmer, Michael Perry. If anyone could 
tell me how to cut out a livelihood on multiple income streams, it might just be him. Michael Perry was raised in a family of farmers, loggers, and truckers. He left a good-paying job in the medical field to chronicle the lives of working people as a freelance writer. A longtime contributor to our friends at Rogue King magazine, he went on to become a latter-day garrison keeler of sorts, hosting the nationally syndicated public radio program, Tent Show Radio, which has featured acts in its tenure like Merle Haggard, Kathy Matea, and John Prine. His autobiographical account of life as a volunteer fireman in New Auburn, Wisconsin, entitled Population 485, Meeting Your Neighbors One Siren at a Time, made the New York Times bestseller list. Publications which have included his work include Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, Backpacker, Outside, and Runner's World. Add to that, he's a singer-songwriter touring every now and then with his band, The Long Beds. I'm really starting to hate this guy. In many ways, Perry embodies the creative equivalent of a small farmer or independent trucker working the gigs that work for him and making shed of the ones that don't. Not bad for a guy who got to start writing for a trucking publication. But none of this would have happened had he not given up his straight job as an RN. In short, Perry resigned to pursue meaning long before such resignations became cool. So we're going to dive into it with Long Haul Paul, his wife Denise, and Michael Perry to talk trucking, writing, exit strategies, and so much more after this brief word from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. First Guard provides commercial truck insurance to leased owner-operators done right. As we've done for more than 80 years, we provide physical damage and non-trucking. Many companies make you pay up to six months of insurance premiums up front, but not First Guard. We bill monthly, so you get quality insurance without needing to pay a lot of cash up front. Go to firstguard.com. That's 1-S-T-Guard.com. First Guard. We speak trucker. Let's talk. So on a frigid January day, Denise and I made the pilgrimage to the Pablo Center. On the literal banks of the confluence of the Eau Claire and Chippewa Rivers in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Where we were graced with one of the best conversations we've had in a long time. Sometimes, and I'm working on this, sometimes I really forget how lucky I am. Today, though, was not one of those days. I, this, this phrase has leached into the na- national lexicon called the Great Resignation. Mm. And uh, you were resigning before resignation was cool and <laughs> making your own way. And... Uh, um, I'm I'm really curious about that because it seemed like some of the most happy, the happiest and most fruitful people I know, they sort of got away from the monoculture, if you will, of having that one job, and then they just started doing all these different gigs, and that's kind of what you do, isn't it? You you and and, and Annalisa as well. Yeah, I'm. 
I have functional ADD, so my mind is going six different directions, and I have eight answers, and I'll probably remember two of them. <laughs> the first thing I was going to say is that, yeah, I mean, as far as the doing a lot of different things, that's just a matter of survival. Um, and I don't mean that in some dramatic sense, but, um, yeah, we're a self-employed family. Uh, I'm a writer. Nothing, none of what I do happens if I don't sit down alone and put the hours in writing. But that manifests in many different ways, whether it's a, a talk at a library, whether it's uh, being the humorist at a gathering of 500 dental hygienists, which I did a couple months ago, <laughs> or whether it's writing a, a straightforward memoir or working on a book. This morning, I, I wrote two uh, scripts for a podcast, and then I was on the phone and working on a script for a radio show and then I turned in two newspaper columns yesterday because I need uh, and so it's just it's a constant mix and it's what of course what the what the big shots corporate big shots call uh, di uh, diversified revenue streams or multiple <laughs> revenue streams mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I also always equated I've written about this to my dad my, my dad was a farmer but the way that he fed all of us kids was a mom who just was this rock and frugal and in the book Coop I talk about she never went shopping until she had a fistful of coupons the size of a bad Uno hand. <laughs> um, but dad, I remember him telling us kids, he said, I milk the cows because you need the milk check. That's the main source of income. And then the old timers taught him, then you also, he logged in the winter, and you logged in the winter because it was a second source of income, plus in the winter, there's a whole bunch of things you can't do on the farm, but the ground's froze so you can skid logs. And then the third thing he did was he had sheep, and he always said the sheep were mostly a money-losing proposition, but on a good year, they'd cover the property taxes <laughs> if you got enough for the lambs and the wool. And so, he was never setting that out as a life path or as instruction, but it settled into me, obviously. And when I decided to start freelancing, I had a lot of hurdles in the sense that I didn't know anybody in the publishing world. I'm not, I didn't have uh, an education from one of those places. But on the other hand, I had the great advantage of not having any sort of preconceived notion of how I needed to act or who I needed to impressed to be a writer I just started writing like my dad was a city kid who started farming he just talked to the neighbors you know and made mistakes and man that's how I started writing I just wrote stuff that never should have seen the light of day but it did and I learned from that it is amazing how your dad sort of veered into farming sort of the way you veered into writing yeah comes home with one cow right yes and he also and i think i mentioned this somewhere in there i mean he also still was working full-time and then eventually part-time uh, in a factory i mean he, it's, it's not like he just sent it all down the road and i one of the things i'm actually trying to remember where your question began but one of the things that i'm always careful about when people are like well you worked really hard and you're self-made and all that i have worked really hard i'm stubbornly persistent but I also had all these launching pads. Yes, I came from a family that qualified for government cheese, but I never went to bed hungry. I had two parents who loved me and were in a very stable relationship. Um, one of the things I sometimes, I get a little grumpier the older I get when people are like, nobody helped me, nobody did nothing for me. I'm like, listen, my parents were two college educated people who made a conscious choice to go live in rural 
America and farm for a living and scrape by. It, they were not thrown there. They walked to that place. And then I was raised by these people. And so even though I spent many years living on next to nothing as a freelance writer, and I like to talk about those days and, you know, getting social security statements with four figure annual incomes, I also had options. And, you know, because of my parents, I went to college and got a nursing degree. And so I had a nursing degree to this day that I renew every two years because like, well, if things really go to heck. So on the one hand, yeah, I do a lot of different things to survive even now, but I also had a lot of different options that I could have exercised if I got into trouble. Yeah, you had yeah. a good foundation, and yeah, so you could always go back to the medical field, and yeah, if you wanted to, yeah. Okay. And I like, you know, I enjoyed my last nursing job. I worked on a rehabilitation unit, a neurological rehabilitation unit, with people who had traumatic brain injuries and strokes and amputations and spinal cord injuries, and uh, I liked that work. I found it challenging and interesting and rewarding. But it was also, as a young nurse, it wasn't something I could just show up and do off the cuff. I needed to prep the night before. I needed to be thinking about my patients, their specific needs, maybe looking up meds, because I wasn't a veteran nurse. And I just realized I couldn't part-time that at that point in my life. And that's why I took a job for half the money I was making as a nurse, because uh, it was a job that I could show up, do my job well, for eight hours, but then go home and write until midnight. And um, so again, there's where I, I liked nursing. Sometimes people ask me, did you waste four years in nursing school? And I would say, well, absolutely not. Number one, I enjoyed working as a nurse for the, I worked <laughs> less than two years as a nurse after getting a four year degree. But also, and I think I've written about this, uh, the nursing program I went to, it was a four year degree, but it was a holistic program where they taught you to not just assess the abdominal pain, but to look at the whole person and all the systems and socioeconomic background and emotional issues and all these different things in addition to taking their blood pressure. And that was the perfect preparation for being a writer because mm -hmm. I always, I, you've probably read because I've said it over and over, but um, nursing is all about human assessment and what is writing, but human assessment. So sure. Sure. So I think 20 minutes later, so, I you know, I have to I have to be very frank. The reason I'm I'm going down this avenue with, yeah. um, you know, passing together a living with different skill sets and having all these alternate revenue streams coming in is because we're living in an age. like OK, so I, I began driving a truck in the 70s mm -hmm. and I had some college behind me and it, it, I met I met a girl, uh, a lady, and <laughs> and and I wound up driving a truck for a living. But I would come up here to Wisconsin and load cheese. I'd go all over the state, and it always amazed me how people could cut a life uh, from these forty-acre plots of land or eighty, and, and it was jagged land. And you, these were just really rugged people who had all these different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you sort of took that agrarian, uh, artisanal sensibility and applied it to what you're doing. Because I, I, I don't want to get too personal, but how many ten ninety nines do you get a year? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so this is interesting, and I don't talk about this a lot. Um, I mentioned already, and that this is the thing that I want to keep hammering. None of this happens uh, 
if I don't get up every day and spend time at the keyboard alone with my thoughts. And uh, that's the boring part that no one, I, I meet people all the time who want to be writers and I ask them what they've written and they're like, well, not a lot. It's like, well, that's, it's kind of like milk and cows. You can't be a farmer if you don't actually milk the cows. Um, so I want to keep stressing so that it doesn't happen without the writing. And, and the other thing that I really want to stress, especially when I start talking about the business and survival part, mm -hmm. is that I still, the first thing I want to do when I get up in the morning is go write. Hmm. So I only say that as preface so that when I start talking about survival and business and freelancing, yeah. that you don't lose sight of the fact that at the bottom of this, I just love what I do. But... Again, I think thanks to my parents and my background, I've always been very realistic. I knew nobody was looking for my work. Uh, I talk a lot about being a writer with a small W instead of a capital W. And so one of the things that helped me was early on just not having any... Um, I probably wasn't as embarrassed as I should have been about just getting my stuff out there. My first four books were self-published. And I joked about it earlier, but I always say that the first two, if you find a copy of them, bring it to me because I want to be the one to burn them. <laughs> right? <laughs> the next two, the, the, you know, book three and four, they weren't bad. And as a matter of fact, got incorporated into, into later work when I got signed to a bigger publisher. But there's a perfect example where I run into people, and, and this still carries on, even now when publishing, you know, we can get into a whole discussion about what trucking was when you started, what publishing was when I started, what it's become. And so people, even today, when they come to me and go, I want to be an author, they're thinking about a model that stopped existing 30 years ago and was in decline 50 years ago. And because I, and again, I keep having to do prefaces and asides <laughs> and disclaimers, but some of my most important friends and mentors are, are academics with MFAs and who can, who can talk the talk and do all that stuff that I, that I can't. I can only express in terms of my blue collar background. But what I don't want that to be mistaken for is disdain for academia because I think academia is essential and we're living every day the price of making fun of it. Having said that, yeah. because I didn't have an MFA, because no one sat me down and said, you're an artist, it's important. I was like, I'm not, my brother's a logger, I'm an artist, it's what we do. Um, when I started out, I didn't have that hurdle of, I don't wanna, I don't wanna demean my art by promoting it, or I don't wanna put this out until it's perfect. I was just like, I think I gotta just make hay while the sun shines. And so I made a lot of mistakes. I did, and I still do projects that flop. I still do things. I spend a lot of time, I'm going to a meeting when, when I'm done here to sit down with someone to talk about what I'm calling my third act. I don't even know that I had a first or second act, but just like what, I'm constantly trying to balance art and feeding the family. So, I have a, a novella that I'm bringing out. It's going to self-publish it in a couple of months. That it's one of the darkest things I've ever written. I'm very um, I'm concerned about it because some of my audience who likes cow jokes or nice reminiscences about life on the farm isn't going to. It's it's hard-edged. It's unsparing. It's a very difficult book, but it's something I cared deeply about and I wanted to write. And you know, there's a case where that might be a mistake, but the option is to never find out. Or sure. the alternative is to never find out. And so that's sort of been my whole my whole path. And when you I'm still working my way back. You mentioned the 1099s. 
because I wasn't so, I mean, maybe I should have been more artistically conscious, but I really didn't have a choice. You know, I talked about one of the ways I survived in the first years is I spent years writing for Road King magazine. And I would have some of my artistic friends go, oh, you write, you write for a trucking magazine? I go, yeah, it's one of the best gigs I have. I get to travel all over the country. I get to ride in trucks that, I, that I'm not qualified to drive, but I get to, and I, and I get to meet people who haul I, you know, cheese from Wisconsin. I get to meet people who haul multi-million dollar antique cars. I get, it, and so because I didn't have that hurdle about perceiving myself as this pure artist, one of the things I did early on was get very businesslike. And I formed a company and I went to an accountant and said, how do I set this up? So that one thing that writing freelancing is, is it's, you might have one year where you do really well and then two years of nothing. And on the year you do really well, if you haven't planned ahead, you get creamed. And oh, yeah. yeah, so I, you know, some people are horrified to find out that I have a, I have a sneezing cow ink. And I set that up years ago because the first time I ever had a good year, I, I got cleaned and I realized, well, I can't raise a family this way. I can't, I can't just hope hope I have bad years and then worry about having good years or whatever. Well, so I did not know you, you, is that when you uh, rode with Dave Sweetman and when yeah. you were with Road King? So I, how did that happen? I, well, first of all, um, as you've maybe read or I've talked about, I mean, I don't have, I really can't think of many heroes in my life because I think the word has become so dilute. Yes, it has. It's yeah, become everybody's commoditized. Yeah. Um, but one of the closest would have been my uncle Stan, the trucker. And so I grew up not, you know, and I joke, but it's true. I can't fix a truck. You really don't want me shifting your truck. I can do it, but I'm just not naturally talented in those areas. But I grew up with the familiarity of that. And that's why I always say, like, I loved going out and, and writing about trucking because I can't shift the truck. I can't fix the truck, but I understand the life. And I also understand how to carry on a conversation or don't talk for three hours mm -hmm. because to use the dumb phrase that I love, uh, them's my people, right? <laughs> and I make fun of my soft hands and I make fun of my complete incompetence as a mechanic, but I get the vibe. Oh, and absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you, motion is my morphine. I mean, that, that, you know, what made that such a great, any great piece of writing has to explain something to you that you could not previously articulate. Mm -hmm. So when you said motion is my morphine, I'm like, wow, that that whole paragraph uh, from uh, that's population, that's population. That probably is. Yeah, I have written enough and, at this point. I can't remember what um, I said. But. And and then and then the song, yeah. um, um, uh, how many miles? Um, but I, I'm like, you know, this is a drug, and that's this sounds so trite. Uh, but I think you wrote "Motion is my morphine." It's the place where I go um, when times get rough. Yeah. And um, you know that that instinct, that reflex. You know, you, there's a wonderful album by Utah Phillips called mm -hmm. um, "Starlight on a Rails: An American Songbook," and he he saw that tendency in himself. And he said, most people I know that are always running, they're on, they're running from something. Mm -hmm. So he bought a place in Spokane just to see if he could settle. And that kind of reminds me of your journey back to Nauburn, 
Did I pronounce it correctly? Nauburn? Nauburn, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's some disagreement on how to spell Nauburn, uh, <laughs> but that's definitely how you say it. Huh. Yeah, well, you know, there, I was putting down hints, even in Population 485. One of the ironies of that book is I wrote that book about how I was very content single. And I make it clear, I was not a uh, wild and crazy bachelor. I was just content. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't desperately seeking anybody at that point. Figured it probably wasn't going to happen. Um, and I wrote about how I found this six-mile square place that I just am utterly at home in and could never see myself leaving. And within two to three years of that book coming out, met someone by chance. We went, you know, I had we were actually looking for property in New Auburn, but my wife's mom had this farm that's very close to here, and it just worked and it made sense. And you know, there's plenty of lessons in that too. You know, make your plans, and well, as folks who believe, say, make plans and God laughs. And, yeah, sure. And um, I think that. I'm interested in him buying that place because my wife and I have had a lot of talks about this and this comes back to that third act thing. It's like, I am so grateful for what I've been able to do. I'm so grateful. I'm going to be doing a little show over to a little theater, uh, one town over here in a couple of months and they're going to come and film it. And I'll be telling some stories that I've been telling for 20 years. I'll tell the story about the beer tent, you know, and I'll laugh. The audience will laugh. I still, when I tell those stories, they still feel like the first time. I feel like I'm still discovering them. And I love that. But I also decided a long time ago, I didn't want to do the same thing over and over. And that in some cases has hurt me. When Population 485 came out and did better than anybody, including and maybe especially me expected. It wasn't a New York Times bestseller, but that book has just, it continues to sell just steadily, steadily, steadily. Um, I had, again, I don't want to be too dramatic. I am after all Midwestern, but, um, there was pressure to do a sequel. Huh. And I just said, you know, that books, I want it to be a snapshot in time. And I also don't want, I really resisted the whole, the outsiders would come in and being kind, this is not a criticism of them, but they'd say, well, you're clearly the voice of, of New Auburn. I'd always say, no, no, it's 485, you know, it, it's one view. And there's someone else down the street that'll tell that story. They won't call me a liar, but they'll tell that story a little differently. And mm -hmm. one of them would be my own brother. You know? oh, so yeah. sure. I, I think that I've resisted doing the same thing over and over. And especially where I am right now, I'm 57. I've got a 14 year old daughter and uh, you're never done being a parent. It's not about, oh, the minute she turns 18, this or that. But I am looking at... I've had enough success that I'm making, you know, if I keep hustling, we're making a living, but I'm not, you know, I can't quit. I can't coast. And so I think a lot about what do I want to do next? And some things are like that novella where I know some people in my audience aren't going to be happy with that book. And I'm not capital A artist where I'm doing it to make anybody angry. I'm not pushing the envelope. I'm just like, no, this thing was in me. I wrote it. If it's not for you, that's okay. I'll still have some cow jokes. And that's what I was really getting to with that whole balance that I was talking to Ben the other day about this, the guy who helps me with um, a lot, just everything. Um, there are certain gigs I have that are, that speak a little more to paying the rent. Mm -hmm. but Ben has been with me long enough now that he's watched and he'll, he'll vouch for me. 
I put all heart and, in, and intent into those as, as much as I do that dark novella. Mm-hmm. If I'm being paid to show up and do something, I'm going to do it with all my heart. And if I tell a silly story about a drunk guy in a beer tent for the 29th time, such I a, still mean it. It's right? such a great story. Well, I'd be an idiot not to tell it, right? I also love to point out that two or three of my very best, most popular stories that I can tell to any audience that I've told for years and years still get huge laughs. They all have a punchline that someone else thought of, right? Like the whole, the beer tent story, the, the beagle and his one eye. Oh like, God. They're like the funniest stories ever. And all I was, was a stenographer. Right? <laughs> like I didn't yeah. come up with that great line. That was the beagle. I acknowledge him, you know, but, um, but what I love about the, and Denise and I have talked about this is it's the emotional range. I mean, I have wept while listening to your, uh, uh, uh books going down the road. I have just laughed, but it's like, you're not, just the utter ribaldry of Bob, uh, of the one-eyed beagle's uh, oh, right. origin story about his eye <laughs> yes. is just so perfect. It's just, you know, I always think of Wisconsin as, as the place that Indiana could have been had we tried harder. <laughs> uh, you know, you're always in the high SAT range. You're right up there with the Unitarians for your medium uh, SAT. And... Uh, but 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 you're not too good to tell uh, the the Bob the, Bob the one-eyed beagle joke. Well, and that's been a struggle. No struggle. There's another word that I use with qualification, obviously. But one of the struggles for me, and when I think about this novella, here I am. I'm 57 years old. The truth is, I could pretty much. I think I've earned the right to say whatever I want. But I'm still conscious. Like I am still conscious of. The person who comes to my show at the theater because they love the sweet story about my daughter and the guinea pig. And if I were to mm-hmm. tell a story like Bob's story or in the novella, there's there's profanity and there's horrifying things happening. But they but they come from as much a space, place of honesty and sincerity as the beer tents or the guinea pig story. And I think that's been a hard, slow journey for me because I have such an inherent I think it comes from my parents an inherent respect for my elders, for people who have been good to me, that I never want this anything to be perceived as me. I'm putting this in your face. To, what, what's the, I'm groping for the word, but oh, I'm not just being provocative yeah. right, for the sake of being provocative. Right. No, I really want to explore this myself. And, you know, I just read a, uh, for a long, long time, I never used any profanity. And um, it's changed a little bit as I've gotten older, but I always told my wife, <laughs> I said, you know how you'll hear about there'll be some sweet person all their life, you know, and in this case, I was for some reason envisioned it as a little old man. But and then all of a sudden they, they start to lose their faculties a little bit and they, they become very profane. And, they, and everyone goes, oh, he, he never talked like that. And I always tell my wife, I'm like, just so you know, I've been talking like that inside all my life. I just haven't let it out. So don't be alarmed. But I think just. That third act thing that I keep coming back to is like, how can you explore these bigger things without, I don't want to make everybody mad. I can't afford to make everybody mad, but I also don't want to like spend the next 20 years, if that's what I'm allowed, being careful not to hurt anybody's feelings either. I don't know. There's so much provocation for the sake of provocation at this point that that's completely trite too. Uh, oh, it's oh absolutely. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's, and I think now we're back to why I still go back. And this morning when I'm writing, I recorded a my little podcast, you know, and I'm 
talking about something a little bit dad jokey, a little bit corny. But that's okay. I can still go back and talk about farmer suicide in that other, you know, if yeah, I have 40 to. acres yeah. deep. There's no, right. There's, I don't see why, uh, I think it's probably healthy to, to work in all those areas. Plus, I just can't. The story, the example I give is, I don't know, so I have this humor album called Never Stand Behind a Sneezing Cow. Yeah. And I don't tell this story a ton. I've been telling it more lately, but you talk about getting started. So I had these little stories. I'd started writing for a local magazine. Then I started reading them out loud at open mics at poetry and poetry readings and people reacted positively and laughed in the right places. And, and then I started getting asked to speak at the Rotary Club, you know, and the, it's like you just build these things. And so I had an hour's worth of those stories. So I rented the Unitarian Church, right? It's like three blocks from here, rented it out of my own pocket, hired a guy with a microphone and a tape recorder, and I recorded it. And then I found a company that would at that time make cassettes. And I hired another friend to design the J card with the artwork. And, and this was all way back before MacBooks and everything. And then I made little cardboard displays. And this would have been in the late 90s. I went to, I do a circle on the map and I went to every quick trip within 80 miles of New Auburn, mostly to the south and west, I think. Um, and I would just walk in and ask for the manager, and then I'd say, hey, I've got these humor stories. They're G-rated. You know, there's a manure joke, but that's it. And can I put these up, and then I'll give you a cut. And for years, I went once a month. I'd drive around to Quick Trips, and I'd replenish my cassette thing and get my $12 <laughs> or whatever and pay off the manager. Um, and But... At one point, the sneezing cow stuff, I, and there's an example, there's some stories in that that I still tell 25 years later. But there was a point for about two years where I got, I was down in Nashville talking to a record label down there, and they were interested in um, making an album of the humor along with a book, and then and they wanted me to write more. And keep in mind, we're talking, this is some of those years with the four-figure annual income years. But there was a little part of me that even then I just said, you know, I love doing this and I love how people laugh and these stories are fun to write and they're fun to perform. But I don't want to be just this guy for the yeah. next 20 years. And, you know, I've made a lot of wrong decisions in my life, but there are decisions like that where I look back and go, I don't know what that guy was thinking because I should have signed up for the money. Um, but I'm glad I didn't because I still love telling those stories, but I don't feel compelled uh, to tell those stories. There's a Steve Martin released a memoir a year or two ago called Born Standing. Yeah. It's really a great read. Have you read that yet? Michael? I have not read it, but I've read a lot of things he has written and a lot of things about him. He he's in the category like him, Lyle Lovett, people like that. Where I go, would you mind leaving a little something for the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's not enough to be Steve Martin, world famous comedian. Turns out you're a tremendous author. You're an amazing banjo player. You're a, all these things. You, oh, you can yeah. do Broadway. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there came a point where he said, I've got nothing left comedically. Yeah. And he just closed that lane and found another lane. Yeah. And, you know, I, in one of your books, you say a way is a way. And like this guy just keeps creating new ways. Yeah. And, Again, everything, Steve Martin maybe is a great example for me on a very reduced level. So sure. Steve and I have different accountants. <laughs> but I, I still am refreshed by, today when I got up, I admit, I went, oh, 
I, pro I probably even said, oh, crap, because I'm profane like that. <laughs> but I said, oh, crap, I got to do that radio script and I got to do this and I got to do that other thing. But there's always that moment where I'm in the creative part of it where I go, this is what I always wanted to do. And then there's also that very fundamental blue collar part where I go, you know, it was below zero this morning. My brother was trying to start his log skitter. Now, he's happy, too. But I know that I would not be happy if I was doing what he was doing. So, yeah. So, so the Steve Martin thing. Yeah, I think there. Here's another thing that I talked about riding with the truckers. One of the things, the writing and getting published and, and 20 some years down the line, still making a living at it, even when nobody's reading books anymore. It, it, I just marvel quietly at it and mostly just feel deep gratitude. But the other offshoot that I never saw coming, I just, Neil Gaiman, very famous author, world famous author, uh, through a series of silly circumstances, I wound up in his kitchen talking to him. And I was telling this person about, I said, it's one of those things where you just go, how did I go from stacking hay bales in Chippewa County, Wisconsin, to standing in Neil Gaiman's kitchen? Or riding in a truck, going up to Salt Lake City to pick up Puff Daddy's Lamborghini or whatever. I've mangled the story. but um, Or driving down to Nashville to sit down and talk to Tim McGraw for an hour, right? A very, a very uh, in that case, a very commercial assignment, very straightforward. But nonetheless, you're like, well, this is cool. This is fascinating. And so I think the people that I've been able to meet, because I'm a loner, I prefer to be alone. Uh, I would think you would relate when it comes to the truck cab. It's like, it's lonely, and you long to be other places sometimes, but you also, like, it's the morphine, right? It's it, There's the bad and the good. It's like, I got to have this. It makes me feel better, even though I know there's probably a cost somewhere else. And for me, as much as I love to be alone, I've also had all these little side door entries into these amazing other lives, be it famous entertainers, be it some guy hauling sewage, whatever it is, they've all been fascinating to me, so... My sister-in-law died. She died very young, and she was a gifted attorney. She was the most feared family law attorney in mm. Chicago. She was a diminutive Italian who <laughs> was beautiful and frightening all at the same time. And she died of cancer, and I just I was just so angry. And I, I went to the her mass at St. Pat's in Chicago, and I'm like, this this whole thing just. And she never lived an irresponsible day in her life, mm. and it. it and it changed me. And I, I, I took a loan out of my 401k and invited Ray Wiley Hubbard to come to Hagerstown, Indiana, on the off chance that I might open for him. Right. And it, this began this backsliding into <laughs> more and more irresponsible behavior. Yes. That uh, and and, uh, and so so and, it, like that. and, and so I I. It seems that Michael, you, you you seem to be like just making these concentric circles in Wisconsin, and I, I saw that you were at the Stoughton Opera House, which my our family went to see Ray Wiley Hubbard. Yeah. He goes, "Hey, I remember you. Such a nice guy." Oh. What was it like playing the Stoughton Opera House? Well, I just played it a month or two ago, and uh, the band and I are going to play there in a couple of months coming up. It's fun. You know, I was just working on a project with some people in L.A. that may or may not ever come to fruition. But part of it was I was pitching this idea of a small Wisconsin town with, an, with a stunning opera house. 
And they all said, what? There's, how, how could there possibly be an opera house in Wisconsin? I said, well, you see, this is why the country's in the shape it is. Because yeah. <laughs> you don't think that we could have an opera house. I got news for you. Now, you know, it was built by rapacious multi-million dollar lumbermen, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, and so for me, that's, that's, you know, it's a perfect segue in a way because I talked about all the people I've been able to meet, but the venues. And again, I never tire of being backstage at the Stoughton Opera House. Depending on how ticket sales went, there's 300 to 400 people who showed up to see me, not 70,000. I'm not Steve Martin looking out at 70,000 people doing all of his jokes and going, I, I'm done with this. <laughs> but there's always that moment where I'm backstage and I can hear people coming in. And I've never lost the the humility and gratitude that comes with the idea that these people decided that tonight, they, this is what they would do with their time and, frankly, their money. And so, again, I just feel like I snuck in the side door because I never set out to be a writer, let alone a performer. Now, as far as the Stoughton Opera House, yeah, the, there's a couple of things that come to mind immediately. One is it's it's stunningly ornate. Yeah, it's um, They have some backdrops that I, I'm sure are priceless, hand-painted backdrops the whole backstage when you leave the green room and you go up the stairs that winds it takes it goes straight up and then it hangs a left and then you hang another left and you're in the wings and you're about to go on stage is the walls are covered with autographs of everybody who's ever played there and what i love about it is that ray wiley hubbard's name is there mm -hmm. famous people but also whoever was in the 1972 production with the local community theater signed it too yeah. and that's this beautiful egalitarian moment sure and then the other thing i always tell people about the stoughton opera house is because it's so well preserved it has the original seats which are very small and very hard <laughs> and so I always tell people, if you're playing the uh, Stone Opera House, make sure there's an intermission and probably wrap that second set up a little early because <laughs> people love you. But <laughs> And then my other favorite thing is one of their fundraisers there is they, they rent, they'll rent you a cushion. I think oh. that's brilliant. Right? It's like, <laughs> they'll rent you a cushion. <laughs> rent or sell, I assume. Oh, this fits into that whole discussion, the, the third act and all that. Cause really? Well, just because I, I've all part of that is I don't want to be the old guy yelling at everybody from the porch. I did. I think you'll notice. Well, you wouldn't notice. That's pretentious to say. But starting about 10 years ago or so, there's this little theme that kept popping up in things I was writing. I know it was in Montaigne. I think it might have even there are hints of it in Jesus Cow. And, and that is that I think when I turned 50 in that area, I just started noticing that a lot of my mentors, the elders that I respected and who had taught me so many valuable lessons, they seemed to do one of two things. They either got really brittle and fearful and wanted to stop everything, or they became very open to new things and new ideas. And I always emphasize, I'm not talking about, they didn't do away with their ethics. They didn't, they didn't try to be cool like the kids. That's not, but they just were like, well, things change. Well, how, how do we navigate this? And I've really, that's sort of been my whole goal for whatever I've got left, whether it's, whether I get hit by a truck, well, I shouldn't demean trucks. People <laughs> no, always that's do that. okay. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would use the same hypothetical. Whether I get hit by a truck on the way out of here today, or if it's 30 years from now, I would hope that I can maintain my ethics and my standards and my principles, but also just 
be open to the idea that things things change and and you can navigate that and also i love the idea and i've had the opportunity to to do a little bit of this i ain't i ain't done i i'm not surrendering or retiring but i love the idea of opening doors and letting other people through there's this, you know, absolutely. I can, yeah, I can think of a couple people where people come to me and they go, what do you think of so-and-so? And they're asking me because what this person is doing has a lot of similarities to mine. Only this person's 20 years younger and they're doing it in, a, as far as I'm concerned, a much more contemporary and creative way. And my reaction is good for them, man. I, if I tried to do it the way they're doing it, I would look silly. This is the super nuanced part. So there were years and years of living on absolutely nothing. But I was also privileged to be a single guy living in New Auburn, Wisconsin, with a house payment of under $200 a month. Too young to know what health insurance was and being really dumb about it. So probably for those years, I had a catastrophic plan, which I probably didn't even know what that was. Mm -hmm. Then I got a family. And the thing that happened when I got a family, I, was, I wasn't sure how I was going to do it, but I wasn't terrified because I'd been doing it long enough by then that I was like, okay, well, there's an offering. <laughs> and then ever since then and right up to the present I just have always talked in terms of horizons and where I'm at now at 57 the horizon used to be two weeks and I got to get a job then it was two months right for years and then I remember you know when I got a, when I started a family I was like well you know if everything goes to heck we can probably get by for six months until I figure out what we're doing and and now over 20 years of knowing my wife, um, you know, that horizon is out enough now that I'm like, if something happens to me, you're going to have plenty of, you know, a couple of years to figure things out. And we're, uh, we've been very, very, the boring part of what I do is we've been very, very frugal and not, we don't, we don't suffer pain. We go on family trips, we do, but we just choose where we spend that money. And then my wife, you know, I'm pretty blunt in Montaigne, you know, the marriage chapter. I don't try to pretend that it's all skipping through the daisies. But one of the things that we have never disagreed on is I had an uncle, Stan, who was a truck driver. He started trucking in this town. He, he, uh, I think he was a waiter or a chef at a little, some little greasy spoon, right? Right around this neighborhood. I think right across that bridge over there. And somebody asked him to run a truck to the cities to drive. I think he was bobtailing. Hmm. And he ran it over there and then somehow got stranded there or they needed another truck. And the next thing you know, he was a trucker. Hmm. And he did that right up until he got sick and um, he died. But um, he trucked all over the country. The story I love to tell is that when I got done with uh, college, because it was back in the day when you could actually do this, but I worked two and three jobs and paid for my tuition and got some scholarships. And so when I graduated from <clears throat> when I graduated from college, not only did I not have any debt, I had a thousand dollars in the bank. Wow, and so when you're twenty one years old or whatever I was yeah. with thousand dollars in the bank, I thought, well, I don't need a job. Right? <laughs> I got all this money. And so I went trucking with my Uncle Stan and we took we picked up cheese and, and we took it somewhere. And then we picked up scented uh, paper that you put in drawers. I remember that we went somewhere in New Jersey and picked up slugs that they used to punch out aluminum cans with. Hmm. Um, and um, 
the thing that I remember about that trip is it's the first time I ever saw the Statue of Liberty. I was riding shotgun in an 18 wheeler crossing the George Washington Bridge. Wow. Which he hated. Have you crossed the George Washington Bridge? Many times. He hated crossing the George Washington Bridge. I, I've been able to avoid it now for about 17 years. <laughs> yeah. Many times leading up to that. Anyway, I wrote this song. I don't write songs for a lot of people. I've written one for my wife, but I wrote this one for my Uncle Stan, the trucker. I'm actually going to take my jacket off. Take my jacket off so I can do all that intricate finger-picking. <laughs> Wait, you know, one thing, one thing Michael, um, I, I do find interesting because I hear you say, I'm not a musician. I just... I just bring musicians with me to the shows and, yeah, yeah. and, but I'm, I, I listened to that, uh, live at Big Top Ch oh. Chautauqua, that bootleg album, man, you, boy, that crowd was going crazy over this song. We had a lot of, yeah. All right. Let's see if I can do this. Black Freightliner Mother Road. Black Freightliner Mother Road Somewhere west of Laramie he rolls Black Freightliner Mother Road 80,000 stacked up on 18 80,000 stacked up on 18 Pictures in his wallet, little dreams. Pictures in his wallet, little dreams. How many miles, how many roads? How many miles, how many roads? is your morphine, let it roll. Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Rumble strips howling in the rain. Rumble strips howling in the rain. Gator in the eastbound hammer Strips howling in the rain. So he tarped that flatbed down one more time. Tarped that flatbed down one more time. Broken hearts and dispatch on the line. And dispatch on the line. How many miles? How many roads? How many miles? How many roads? Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Motion is your morphine, let it roll.
Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive, the voice of the American trucker. It's edited and produced by me, Todd Dills, with additional support from Overdrive Extra contributing writer Paul Marhofer, who hosted today's episode, Overdrive News Editor Matt Cole, Social Media Coordinator Holly Young, and Executive Editor Alex Lockie. Perry will take us out. I hope you make it home one more time. Hope you make it home one more time. Grab another gear, hell out of wine. Pray you make it home safe one more time. How many miles? How many roads? How many miles? How many roads? Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Motion is your morphine, let it roll. How many miles? How many roads? How many miles? Motion is your morphine, let it roll. Motion is your morphine, let it roll. All right. Now, I, that sounds great. Thanks. I've sang the heck out of that.